John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. And let me just say, thankfully, this passage is not as heavy as the one last week. Uh, It does not mean that it's easy, but I think that it is not as heavy. But I will say this. I want to open with a quote tonight from a man named Alexander McLaren who said this. He said, Nowhere else do the blended lights of our Lord's superhuman dignity and human tenderness shine with such lambent brightness. Nowhere else is his speech at once so simple and yet so deep. Nowhere else have we the heart of God unveiled to us like we do here. No other page anywhere else in the Bible has so many eyes glistening with tears looking upon it and then have those tears dried. The immortal words with which Christ spoke in that upper chamber are his highest self-revelation in speech. And what he is talking about tonight is indeed the beginning of what we would come to know as the upper room discourse. It's where Jesus comes around his disciples and Judas, and we'll talk about that in a moment, and he washes their feet and he serves them and teaches us to go and do likewise. Let's jump in right here in verse 1. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And our first principle tonight, and they'll have several that are kind of like this, is that we need to understand the context of when and where this takes place. Almost every phrase in that first verse is of significance. The first one, in a temporal sense, before the feast of the Passover. And so even though there's a little bit of debate here on exactly when this took place, everyone agrees this was right before the wheels really began to come off. That the shadow of the cross, which had been growing throughout the entirety of the Gospel of John, has now begun to fall heavily on Jesus And so he calls his disciples aside to say some things to them that they needed to hear and to do something for them that they needed to experience. And the fact that this takes place before the Feast of Passover is important. You may recall when Jesus came into our purview in the beginning of the Gospel of John, what was the first thing that John the baptizer said about him? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So that was that bookend of his ministry. Now here at the end, before the feast of the Passover and the lamb, sacrifice and eating was such a big part of that, it's saying again, as it is said throughout, Jesus is the Passover lamb. So the timing in which this occurred is of importance. But also the timing in which this occurred is important in another way. Look at that next phrase. When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart to go out of the world to the Father. So again, this is that razor clear, a razor sharp awareness that Jesus knew what he had come to do and when his time to do it would come to an end. So he senses that time is drawing nigh and John points that out. Another reminder of his divinity and also a foreshadowing of his forthcoming ascension. Now also check out this phrase here. 
<coughs> having loved his own who were in the world, talking about the disciples there, he loved them to the end. Now, this is important for two reasons. Number one, because it introduces the theme of love, which is going to be very important in this passage and throughout the rest of the book. But also this phrase here, to the end, an initial reading of that would make you think, okay, he loved them to the end of his life. Now, of course, that's true, but we know that Jesus still loves his disciples today, so I don't think that's the fullness of what is being captured here. I think a, uh, perhaps another rendering of this, the expositor's commentary points this out, and I agree with him, is that this could be written as he loved them to the fullest extent. Another commentator looked at it from a different way and said he loved them in every single possible way that he could. And right in the midst of all that, this love to the end, this love in every way, love in every possible way, it says this in verse 2, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So everything that's about to happen here in this great avalanche of love, if you want to think about it that way, even was for Judas, who he knew was going to kill him, or was going to participate in having him killed, you understand. And that, I think, is incredibly significant. Now, you also would notice there in verse 2 that, that we have this interplay. Last week, we saw it from God and humanity. Here you see the enemy, Satan, and humanity. That Judas is going to make his own decision, but who put that decision in front of him? The enemy. Reminds me very much of what we saw in the Garden of Eden, where they made a choice that we all have been dealing with since then, but the tempter was very much involved. Now, verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. So again, this same idea, just the same idea that we saw just a moment ago, this connection between God the Father and Jesus, the fact that Jesus had done what he came to do, he's, he's headed back to heaven very soon, and also his authority that we have seen throughout the book. So in many ways, John is highlighting yet again some of these same themes. And that's significant, because anytime you see something repeated and repeated and repeated, it is there for emphatic significance. The authority of Jesus is key. The connection to God is key. The sense of timing is key. And it also makes what happens next even more poignant. Because we're talking about the king of the universe here. The king of the universe, with all the authority, laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist, and then he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And so to, to, to really lay hold of what John is telling us here, we need to understand foot washing and also the significance of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. And let's see if we can enter in to this scene as best we can. The world would have been locked outside. The disciples would have been reclining in their traditional posture with a left arm to support one's head and the right arm to reach the dishes on the table. 
Their feet would have been stretched out beside them. And in the midst of the discussion, the king of the world rises and does something that even a slave was not allowed to do. Jesus embodies and shows us here in this moment exactly what Paul proclaims about him over in Philippians chapter 2. When he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the very form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. This, again, is the embodiment of exactly what we see over in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, when Matthew says, the Son of Man... Uh, or he quoting Jesus here says, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But if we understand this passage rightly, we have to see the juxtaposition of matchless glory and purposeful humility and servitude. That's part of the, the paradox of the gospel. That Jesus, who was under no obligation to us, essentially gave up everything for us so that we might gain everything. That's baffling. There is no other deal like that in this world. And so as we view this, we got to view it through the lens of grace. We've got to view it through the lens of amazing grace. And in the midst of that, and what probably was a bit of awkward silence, because everyone knew, hey, why is Jesus doing this thing that even slaves are not allowed to do in some contexts? He comes over to Peter. The inference here, possibly he might have gone around and Got some of the other disciples first but, he, or first, but he comes to Peter, and Peter, doing what Peter does, has something to say. He says, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. I found one joke in a commentary I thought was funny that said, good old Peter... Sometimes the only time he ever opened his mouth was so that he could change feet. This is one of those moments. And what's interesting here is that the Greek is even more forceful than the English. What what he would have said in Greek would have been something like this. It's, Lord, you, my feet, do not wash. No, never shall you wash my feet until eternity. And what he's trying to communicate there in, in almost this staccato kind of way is that this is not a job for you. This couldn't even be required of a Hebrew slave, and you are the master, the teacher. What in the world are you thinking? Well, Jesus tells him. He answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. 
And Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And that's why he said, not all of you are clean. So let's try to unpack Jesus's response here. And it seems to me, at least in the resources that I used this week, not everybody fully agrees with this interpretation, but this seems to be kind of the, 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 where most people land. But what I think he's getting at here is that he's talking about foot washing in a sense figuratively. But let's talk about it, what it meant literally first, and then we'll talk about it figuratively. Because some of us, if you've not been around the Bible, you probably have not heard much about this. But foot washing as a practice uh, would have just been something like, I don't know if you've ever been out west and you've seen a place where uh, there's like a place right inside the door where cowboys that are wearing boots can come in and basically scrape off their boot from mud or cow manure or anything else they pick up along the road so that they're not tracking it all over wherever they're going. Well, at this time, the people had sandals. They didn't have Ariat boots. And so what would happen is when somebody would pull up for a party, there would be someone that would be designated, and it could be different people, um, but someone would be the foot washer. And it was considered a very, very menial task. And so this whole exchange here of Peter saying, what are you doing? Because like I said, a Hebrew slave was not even allowed to do this. That's what he's getting at. And so when Jesus comes back and he speaks of it, he does speak of it, not literally, but figuratively. And what I think he's getting at here is he's, these are my kind of ideas, but I think you'll understand what I'm saying, that there's kind of a justification foot washing, a cleansing that happens when we become Christians, when we recognize that only Jesus can save us and, and we put our faith and trust in the finished work of Christ. He cleanses us in a once-for-all kind of sense. But all of us know, even after our conversion, we still get pretty proverbially dirty. The world is dirty. We encounter things we don't even want to see, don't even want to hear. Then we make a lot of poor choices and sin on top of that. And so we need to go back to Jesus, not for a justification foot washing, so to speak, but more of a sanctification foot washing, so to speak. A daily cleansing. The way I try to do this is just at different points during the day, I'll just say, Lord, forgive me for that. Or forgive me for anything that I've not asked for forgiveness for. And I don't do that out of a sense of guilt and that I'm afraid God is, trying, is going to get me. It's that I want my fellowship with God to be close. And I don't want sin to back up and keep my feet figuratively dirty, so to speak. And that's what I think that he's getting at here with Peter. He's saying, you have been cleansed, but you need to be cleansed, though not in a saving way. That's what I think Jesus is saying here. Now, again, I do think there are some other interpretations, uh, but this seems to be kind of the trajectory of, uh, of what people are saying. But I think the question that we need to step back here and say is, okay, so what do I, as a listener to this passage, what, what do I do with this? And I think there's a couple of things. First of all, you need to ask yourself, 
Have you been cleansed in this eternal sense in the way that Jesus is talking about it? Has there been a time when you have come to Jesus and turned from your sins and trusted in what he has done for you and transferred the leadership of your life over to him? Has that great exchange taken place? And if you would say no, or you would say, I don't know, then we need to talk about that tonight. And then just a bit, when the rest of us take communion, you hold off, but you come grab me, I'll be in the back, and we want to we wanna help you settle that issue. That's the first thing I think we need to do with this. But then the second thing is, if that has already happened, what is your pattern and practice for this kind of sanctification foot washing, so to speak? The daily repentance of sin, going to Jesus, asking for forgiveness, being cleansed and restored. I don't know that this is something that comes naturally to us as Christians. It should, but this seems like the kind of thing that if we are lazy in any way, that we can kind of let this go. And one of the things I love about our church is every week we have an opportunity when we gather together during our service and particularly before communion where we can confess our sins and we can be reminded of the forgiveness of, that is ours in Christ. We do that every week. It's part of the reason we do it that way. But this would be my encouragement to you. Sunday only comes once a week, right? And you're sinning every day, just like I am. So find some time, make some time each and every day. Maybe do it at morning, maybe do it at lunch, maybe do it right before bed, where you are confessing your sins to the Lord and experiencing his forgiveness. There's a guy named D.L. Moody gave a quote many, many years ago. It's always stuck with me. He said he liked to keep short accounts with God. And that's part of what he's talking about here, that he wanted to experience this kind of sanctification, foot washing, if you will, as much as possible. So based on that, now let's look at verse 12. Because it says, when he had washed their feet and put, his, put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you were right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. And I bet you could have heard a pin drop. And if you didn't hear it there, you'll definitely hear it here. Because Jesus makes this even more clear. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you. That's one of those statements that Jesus makes to say, hey, hey, listen, I'm underlining this. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now, here's why I think this would have been a pin drop moment for them. I don't think this is too much sanctified imagination to say what I'm about to say here. In Luke's account of the last meal, this is over in chapter 22, right as that was coming together, these same disciples were having a massive argument about who was going to be the greatest. The cross is just hours away. And these dudes that have been following him and doing stuff with him and seeing him do all the miracles for years now, 
were out there arguing who was going to have the best seat in the kingdom and who was going to be the biggest deal. I mean, like, you talk about embarrassing. Now, I'm not saying I wouldn't have done it, okay? I would have been probably caught in the mix like all the rest of them. But, like, you just see what humanity is capable of. That is not a pretty picture. And what is possible is that Jesus is asking this question because he knew about that shenanigans that was taking place. And so he's saying, are you hearing what I'm saying? Because I heard what you said. But are you hearing what I'm saying? That following me is not about being the greatest. It's about being the greatest servant. It's not about lifting yourself up. It's about appropriately offering yourself out that you are to serve and if you're going to follow me you're not greater than me and we've already established he knows who he is he's the lord he's the teacher he's exalted we got all this commentary from john on top of what jesus said and he's saying listen you want to go up in the kingdom the way is down you want to be exalted bring yourself low you really want to experience where the joy is at? You serve other people. That's why I think there would have been a pin drop there. And then look at this. I think this is important too. He says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And I think the connection there between knowing and doing is pretty significant. Because he did not say, if you know these things, then you should make a bumper sticker and put it on your car and talk about the greatness of serving. He says, if you know this, you should do it. And so what he's offering us there is an invitation into a life of blessing, a life of happiness, a life of true and lasting joy. But well, we got to do what Jesus says. But here's the problem with that. This is hard. In fact, I would say this is not just hard. This is impossible apart from the work of the Holy Spirit within our hearts. But here's the good news. Jesus' disciples are to follow the example of their master. And that master will help them. See, we could hear this. And we could say, oh my goodness, I am really awful at this. I guess I'm just going to have to try really hard next week. That will get you to maybe Monday. But what's going to happen is, after all of your self-effort runs out, and your bootstraps have broken from you trying to pull yourself up by them, you're not going to have the resources that you need, and I'm not either, to be able to do what Jesus very clearly tells us to do. So what we have to have is we have to have the master, the Lord, the teacher, the exalted one that gave us this teaching come along and work on our hearts so that we can do this with supernatural strength. So how do we do that? Well, we put ourselves in a place where Jesus can do that. We make ourselves available so that Jesus can do that in. We come to Jesus and we say something like this, Lord, apart from you, I don't want to serve anybody. I want to serve myself. I want to put myself 
at the front of the line. I want to be in charge. But you're telling me that I can't do that and that I shouldn't do that because that's not where the real happiness and the real blessing is anyway. So, Lord, I come and I bring my self-will and my self-serving and I confess it to you and ask you to cleanse me of it, to forgive me for this. And, Lord, I ask you to help me do what you're calling me to do. And let me give you some really good news. The Lord loves to answer that kind of prayer. He's not going to look at you and go, yep, you really are terrible in this area. I mean, you're an embarrassment to all Christians everywhere. That's not the way the Lord is. Figuratively speaking, the Lord is going to pat you on the back, figuratively speaking, and say, I know, you're actually really worse than you even know. But I love you so much, and I want to help you. And I am your good father, and I am going to help you. And I'm going to use you and allow you to serve people in ways that you didn't even know were possible. And it's going to make you happy when you do it. And it's going to give you joy when you do it. Because that's how good Jesus is. He is going to give us what we need to do what he is commanding. See, that's part of that amazing grace. It doesn't just save us. It sanctifies us as well. And his grace is available to us tonight even in hearing this. Jesus loves us so much that he tells us what the problem is. He shows it to us through the disciples. Boy, we're a lot like them. And then he helps us. By seeing ourselves in this, by seeing our need in this, by seeing our obstacles in this. And then he, in his kindness, leads us to repentance and empowers us to do what he is saying. So let's stop and ask a couple questions here. Number one, do you see your own problem? None of us want to serve naturally. That is a supernatural thing. Number two, are we confessing, are we confessant, I'll make that word up, of our problem, of our need? And number three, and for some of us, this may actually be the hardest one, are we willing to receive the grace of God and allow him to work and to flow through us? Are we willing to open our hand, open our heart, and let the grace of God flow through us and help us be the kind of servant that he wants us to be. That's the real challenge. Just make ourselves available to the Lord. Let me give you one other good piece of gospel logic that I think will help us here. We serve others because Jesus served us. We serve others because Jesus served us. When we think about the nature of the gospel, when we think about the fact that the king of glory laid aside all the benefits of heaven and he came and he added humanity to his divinity and he lived the way he lived for as long as he did. When we think about the grand paradox that that is, there's no way that that doesn't shape and change and melt our hearts and make us more open to this. 
So as you go through this week thinking about this and coming back to the Lord and asking for help to be a better servant and so on and so forth, friends, never lose sight of Mount Calvary. Meditating on the gospel, as you meditate on this word, it will help you. Because any command to serve should naturally draw us upward toward the ultimate servant. And if we're just hearing serve, serve, and we're not hearing Jesus has served you, then, then we're missing part of the equation. This truth, this command, this example naturally draws us toward the gospel. And we need to hear it. We need to hear it. Now, what else is going to help us hear it? Well, the Word is important. Other types of ministry of the Word are important. Good podcasts, both from in the church and beyond. Good books, walking close in community, talking about this kind of stuff, confessing our own difficulty with this kind of passage, praying for one another, encouraging one another, all those ordinary means of grace that we've talked about taking communion each week that we've talked about. You get to see the example of ultimate service every week and participate in it. All these things, the Lord is going to use them to point us in the right direction. And there's also one last little thing that will help us here too. And it kind of comes in through the side door. Look at this. Verse 18. He said, I'm not speaking to all of you. I know whom I've chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Now, what Jesus is doing right here after doing this very significant thing is I think he is further reinforcing the contiguity of the Bible. The quote that he's making here, uh, you probably see this uh, the, uh, about halfway through verse 18, that you'll have a quote inside of your verse about he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. That's a, a pointer back or really a pointer forward from Psalm 41, 9 that, that, that is taken to talk about what, what he's talking about here. And so again, we see this story that every book of the Bible in its own unique way is pointing to the coming of Christ. And then also Jesus says why he's doing this. He's saying, I'm telling you this so that when all this goes down in the cross in just a few hours, that you know that I am really the Messiah, that you've not wasted your life, that it's really true. And then finally, when he says this bit here about receiving him, he's making that connection again and again and again, that he is indeed God. So how can that help you serve? Here's how it's going to help me serve. Because we're not just looking at some piece of inspirational material here. The Bible is not chicken soup for the soul. The Bible is transformation for the soul because of its implicit authority that comes from God himself. And when Jesus says this, he says it with a weight and he says it with an authority and he says it with an empowerment that is unique to him. He wanted those disciples to know that the one who just served them 
is also the one who is going to die for them and the one who is going to be exalted forever. This is the authority of Christ on display. So let's wrap all this together today. I think this passage is generally about showing us the greatness of Jesus and showing us the importance of serving. But those two things are related. Because if we want to do the practical thing well, we cannot lose sight of the necessary connection to the first thing first. The greatness and the glory of Jesus. The wonder and the mystery of how he would lay it all aside and wash the feet of his disciples, even the one that was going to betray him. Friends, that's how good Jesus is. That's how unique Jesus is. That's how wonderful Jesus is. So I want to end our time tonight by just pausing. And let's take just a minute in silence as we pray. To praise, to confess, and to glorify this wonderful Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we see a passage like this. We see all kinds of things. We see a fresh reminder of our sinfulness and our lack. But we also see a fresh reminder of your grace and your power, your authority, your uniqueness, your wonderfulness. Lord, we really want to do what this passage tells us to do. But we can't do it apart from you doing a work within us. So we ask that as we seek to go and serve, you would supernaturally remind us that our service flows only from the service that you have done for us. As a church and as individuals, may we always be close to the gospel. Lord, we thank you for this time that we've had together tonight. And we pray all this in Jesus' mighty name.